Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Good morning, everybody. Hope you're all having a blessed service so far. We just pray that God continues to bless us all. I'm just going to do the Bible reading from 1 Peter 3, 14 um, to 4, 6. And it says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to, to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer, for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity we have to hear your word. I pray that you would bless Andy as he comes to preach. And Lord, I pray that you would stir our spirits and our hearts to be ready to be fed by you. And that you would water our souls, Lord, and refresh us as we hear your word. We just pray for the power of your anointing on everyone here today. By the power of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Heather. And good morning. It is very nice to be back. Um, As you can tell, I've been in Singapore for two weeks and worn Factor 50 sun cream every single day. Um, but it's been, it's been a nice time away, but we've really looked forward to being back with you all. Um, and I'm looking forward to speaking on this topic as well. Um, let me pray. It says, the first few, ver- uh, first few words, have no fear of them. Lord, you tell us this, to not be afraid. And we simply ask that your spirit, your Holy Spirit, meets with us and helps us to not be afraid in whatever circumstances or situations, that we would fear God, not anything else, and that that would rightly align us to follow Jesus. Amen. 
Amen. So you will have heard in the reading, um, apologies it wasn't on the screen, I think that's my fault for not having communicated while being away and all of that, but um, if you do have Bibles it will be helpful to have the verses available to you, Uh, the relevant ones should pop up on the screen as time goes on. Um, But there was a mention in this passage of Noah um, and his sons and his family, the famous story of Noah who God told to build an ark in the Old Testament because the atrocities in the world had grown to such an extent, the corruption in people's hearts, the way that people treated one another had got to boiling point. And God had been so patient with the population for so long, but there was a moment when things simply were never going to turn around and improve, but it was only ever getting worse. And God decided to uh, end that population and start a new world. And he spoke to Noah. He showed Noah favor, spoke to Noah and encouraged him, told him to build a, a large boat, an ark, available for anyone who wanted to be saved to step into it and to begin a new world, a new creation at the other side of it. And when I read the Bible and have a passage like this, sometimes in preparation I'll go on a bit of a tangent and I'll try and imagine the scenario. I'll try and put myself in the scene if I can and to bring a bit of life to it. Now this is not me adding to scripture. This is simply trying to use my imagination to fuel my faith. And so I sort of imagined what would it have been like for Noah and his sons A couple of days into chopping down wood, going and buying supplies, giving up perhaps their day jobs in order to work on this project that they'd now been called to with freshly blistered hands, sitting round the campfire at the end of a very tiring day, chatting to one another, doing a bit of a recap. Noah asks his sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth, so how's the day been? How's... How are you feeling at the moment? It's been quite a big shock for us. It's been a big turnaround in our lives. How are you doing? And I imagine the different responses that the different sons may have given him. I can imagine Shem saying, to be honest, I'm hating it. I'm fed up with this world. I'm fed up with the people now laughing at us for building a boat in the middle of a dry land. I'm fed up with my friends making snide remarks. I'm fed up with the society saying we are totally deluded. I'm fed up with it all. I want it to end. And the other day I just lashed out. I got violent. I attacked the people who were making uh, insulting remarks. I retaliated. And to be honest, it worked. They've now shut up. They've gone quiet. They now don't speak to me about this anymore. I think it's perhaps the way to go. But then Ham pipes up and says, look, Shem, I think that's just all too much hard work. For me, it's just been better to get away from the whole thing. I gave up my job. I left to just devote myself to building this boat. I tend to not hang around with those people anymore. I don't like what they're doing. I don't like their lifestyle. I've just separated myself from them. It's much, much easier. And then Japheth They all look at Japheth, how are you doing? He said, to be honest, I haven't mentioned it. People at work are talking about this 
big boat that's being built over there and I haven't said anything. I prefer to just stay quiet. It's easier. It's more comfortable. I don't need to upturn the tables in my office. I don't need to upset anyone by what I might say or what I might believe. I can just stay quiet, can't I? And I can imagine Noah listening to his sons, hearing what they're saying and thinking, boys, yes, this is a natural way to respond, but this isn't what we're called to do. Shem, you're fighting. You're retaliating, using the same methods that they're using to you. You're fighting back against them. You're only going to put people off. You're only going to create separation. You're only going to make it harder for people to respond to the possibility of salvation. Ham, by running away from this entire thing, how are people going to hear that there is a possibility to be saved from this world? How are people possibly going to ever find out that they might be saved from sin and enter into the new world? If you run away from the whole thing, if you separate yourself out from the world, how will people know? And Japheth, just freezing, just going quiet. Well, what message does that send to people? It clearly demonstrates that, or it suggests that actually this isn't really a big deal. Maybe the flood is just going to be a little slight rise in water levels, but it's not going to be a just staying quiet, not really talking about this. It sends the message that actually there's nothing real of consequence in any of what we're doing. And I think it can be all too tempting when we're feeling intimidated or fearful, when society's starting to put pressure on us, as the temperature is rising at what Christians perhaps believe, how we're living our lives. It can be all too tempting to choose one of these three options, to fight, flight, or freeze. And I wonder which do you tend to go towards? Which do you tend to use? Uh, Do you want to know mine? I discovered it yesterday. I choose all three. The irony. I just got back. We um, have met up with really good friends who um, have been in South Africa for a long time and we we, um, spent the afternoon together. And they both asked me, they're not believers, they've been to church twice, But they both asked, oh, so what are you talking on tomorrow? (laughs) And I completely fluffed it. I was like, oh, well, um, uh, you know, it's just something in the Bible that, uh, um, uh, yeah, we we sort of try and talk about. And they really grilled me. They're like, no, what are you going to say? We're interested. And uh, eventually something came out, maybe of substance, and hopefully I haven't completely put them off. But I'm tempted to do all three. I got a little bit defensive. I I fought. I tried to avoid it, and then I froze. I went through all three of these, and I wonder, which is it for you that tends to be the most prominent? Your main, main reaction when the workplace starts to become a bit more hostile to the ideas of Christianity, or friends start to, I don't know, talk about something in the news that's happening, or even just the idea, the topic isn't coming up at home, and you think, actually, I'll just freeze, and I won't raise it as an issue at all. Which one do you tend to choose? Do you know the good news for me yesterday was this. 
My place and my relationship with God is not based on my performance yesterday. It's based on Jesus' performance 2,000 years ago. How I relate to God isn't based on how well I have decided to live out and be bold for my faith. It is based on how well Jesus did in his life. Think about it. He was tempted in all the same ways as us, and yet he never sinned. He was tempted to retaliate on multiple occasions. At one point, his disciples said, why don't we just send down fire from heaven on that village that have just rejected you? Or just before Jesus is about to be arrested, when the guards are coming to him, one of his disciples, Peter, who wrote this letter, pulls out a sword and attacks. How tempting would it have been for Jesus, staring unfair death in the face, to just allow his disciples to defend him with their weapons? Just maybe even just just see what might happen. This is so unfair to not say anything and let Peter attack. Would have been so tempting to fight back. How tempting it was for Jesus to just run away from the whole thing. His disciples constantly doubted him, questioned him, were taught something and completely forgot it. Constantly undermined him in different ways. Constantly asked him questions that were full of doubt rather than faith. And Jesus at times says, how long must I put up with this generation? How long must I endure this constant doubt, this lack of faith? My disciples undermining me at every turn. He would have been so tempted to just run away from the entire thing. Go back home to heaven. Give it all up. Leave the country and find another group to try and establish his kingdom. And then the temptation to freeze. There are a couple of moments when Jesus became really popular and life became a bit more comfortable for him. A moment when he feeds thousands of people and he suddenly is the new name in town. He is popular with all of these people and they want him to keep doing miracles for them. And yet God has called him to go and preach and to continue his mission. It would have been so tempting to stay with the crowd that really loved him. Or there, were, there was a moment early on in his ministry where he healed people in a certain region. And there were more and more. And loads of people were coming for healing. And his disciples said to him, let's just stay here. Let's minister to this region. You're popular here. Things are comfortable. Perhaps we can really work on something and develop a really good ministry together. But Jesus says, no, I'm called to go to the next place and to preach the gospel. He gave up that comfort. He was so tempted to fight back, to run away, to freeze and choose the comfortable option. And yet he always chose faithfulness. He always chose to be faithful to God's call on his life. Do you know the good news? It's because of Jesus' perfect faith that our imperfect faith can now grow and develop. We don't have to have got this perfect before God works in our lives. God is working in our lives through simple faith and he is growing us and developing us. That's the good news. It's Jesus' choices 
that give us the foundation to take steps in the right direction. So don't feel under any condemnation today that you have chosen to fight or flight or freeze when you're feeling intimidated by the world. But in good faith, trusting that Jesus is working in your life by the Holy Spirit, let's take some steps of faith. And Peter gives us principles to grow in this letter that he wrote. And he must have known this full well because he was the tempter. He was the one trying to tempt Jesus to fight back, to run away and to freeze. And he is learning these lessons and giving them to these early readers. And he starts with this basic principle, putting everything in its right place. He says this, in your hearts... Regard Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. What I think about this, it's put Christ at the center of the center. I like to think of our hearts a bit like the living room in a house. Now, this doesn't quite work with London folk who, are, who all live in shoeboxes, all of us, but... Outside of London, people have homes with living rooms, I've heard. And that living room is the centre of the house. That's where everyone comes from their individual rooms and they live together. That is the centre of the house. And what, in modern day, is the centre of the living room? Well, since its invention, the television has become the centre of the living room. The centre of the house is the living room, the centre of the living room is the TV. And whatever is on TV affects the atmosphere of the entire house. Whatever's playing will affect everything that's going on. And here's my question. What is playing on the TV in your living room? Are you constantly watching horror films? You're always catastrophizing. You're always thinking about the worst things. Everything is negative and pessimistic. Everything inevitably goes wrong in your life. You've got horror films playing in your heart non-stop. Maybe it's soap dramas. Everything is more emotional than it needs to be. Everything is uh, heightened. It's all drama. Your life is drama. You're constantly replaying these big fights, these big relationship breakdowns. It's just soap dramas constantly playing on the TV in your heart. Maybe it's something quite dodgy. You're playing stuff that you are constantly on the outlook, constantly paranoid that someone might walk in and see what you're watching. That's your personality. It's very hard to get close to you because what's going on on the inside, you don't want anyone to find that out. Maybe it's the sports channel on repeat. Life is a game. Life is a competition. Everything is about being defensive or offensive. Everything is a fight. Everything is competitive. You're constantly thinking about how you can one-up someone else or get ahead of other people or why they've done this and how you can retaliate. It's the sports channel playing over and over in your heart. Or maybe it's videos of you. You as a kid, you as an adult, you've just got videos of you and your family. You're very preoccupied with yourself. That's what's playing on the TV in your heart. 
And whatever's playing on the TV in the living room affects all of the living room. Whatever's going on in the living room affects the entire house. Your moods, your attitudes, your beliefs, your decisions are all being controlled by what's on the TV, by what's playing at the very center of your life. And Peter is encouraging us, put Christ on the TV. Now, I'm not talking about constantly watching God TV, or even TBN, even though we do have one of their presenters in our church. That's an external thing. Literally putting God TV on or Premier Radio or whatever and having it playing in the background won't do you any good at changing the inside necessarily. It might be helpful at times to have that in your life, but that doesn't solve our issues. Do you know? It is very possible to commit adultery while God TV is playing in the background in your living room. It is not possible to commit adultery when Christ is your living focus. When you are focused and delighting in Christ on the inside, it's very hard to sin. It's very hard to step away from him. When he is your dedicated focus in life, when everything is oriented around Christ, when he is on the TV... It is much easier to live this life. But what do I mean? What I don't mean is that you need to be 24-7 glued to a chair, staring at the screen of Christ, not doing anything else productive in your life. Because do you know God has a plan? He has a commission on your life. He's called you to do stuff. What I'm saying is this. Get on with your normal life. Read a book. Watch a screen, do your work, do the chores, do the cooking, but always have Christ on the TV in the background. And as regularly as possible, devote some time to having it in the foreground. Turning up the volume, watching, but then get on with the rest of your life. But always have Christ playing on the TV in the living room of your heart, on repeat, never switch it off. Don't flick channels. That's where Christ belongs, at the center of the center of your life. And here's the thing. Make sure that you're watching the live stream, not the pre-record. What do I mean? I can easily fall into the trap of treating Christ as a great historical figure on pre-record. There are amazing stories about this man, Jesus. What an inspiring character of history that I'd love to be like. I'd love to hear more about the stories of him, watch those documentaries about him. But do you know what the apostles taught as they traveled around the world telling people? is not this chap Jesus was a brilliant man and he did amazing things. They emphasized what he now is doing. And where he is now. What do I mean? In verse 22 of this passage, chapter 3, verse 22, Peter just, almost as an aside, because it's so natural to him, he just says this. 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who, by the way, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. For Peter, Jesus was not just a historical figure, a great friend that he'd had in the past. Jesus was actively working, actively in a place right now. That's what I mean by have the live stream on, not pre-records. Let all of your focus be on the fact that Jesus is not a historical figure that was great in the past. He is a current living legend. He is alive and active right now. He is at the right hand of God right now. We know exactly where he is. We don't need find my phone for Jesus. We know where he is and we know what he's up to. He is at the right hand of God interceding for his people. He is at the right hand of God taking dominion over all nations. He is at the right hand of God ministering through his spirit to those who would respond to him. He is active. He's alive and kicking right now. Watch the live stream. So when you're reading the Bible, it's not a historical book to just treat as a great thing that stuff that happened in the past. It is a living book that informs us and helps us to understand what Christ might be up to right now in your life. It's not just a historical thing. This is right now, here and now happening. Christ is working in and through us. As his word is preached, whether it's well or whether it's not well, but as God's word is preached... He is working in our hearts. He is powerfully working in our hearts to anyone who listens. It's what he's up to right now. So put Christ at the center of the center. Put him constantly on the TV screen. Don't turn him off. Have him in the background if you're doing other stuff. Give time to making him at the foreground. It happens through this. It happens through our regular meeting together and reading the Bible together. It happens through those devoted prayer moments. Those are not religious rituals. Those are as life-giving as, for me, watching Gogglebox. I absolutely love the program Gogglebox. That is life-giving. Having Christ at the center of your life and devoting some time where you just spend it with him, whether that's with other people or whether it's just on your own, that is where the center of your life should be. So put Christ at the center of the center and then put yourself in the picture. Sit down, be humble. See, can you imagine how tempting it would have been for Shem, Ham and Japheth, Noah's sons, after a couple of days to become a little bit self-righteous? They've now got blisters on their hands. They've got sweat on their brow and splinters in their arms from this hard work of building this boat to save the world and to create a new world. And people are still mocking them and saying it's stupid, saying it's a waste of time. Would have been very easy for them to become a little bit self-righteous and to turn against those who are making such comments. All they need to do is read the book of Genesis. Now, I know that would have been tricky for them, but they have to remember why they are going to be saved in the first place. It's very clear from the book of Genesis that Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's family, were not saved because they were righteous. 
it says very clearly that they were saved because Noah was righteous. He was regarded by God as the righteous one in that generation. And so God chose him and chose to show favor to him. And it's because Noah was a righteous man that his family have the opportunity to be saved. If it had been a different man somewhere else, Shem, Ham and Japheth would have no chance. They are only in this building project because of their father Noah and God's favor upon him. And it's even more true of us. Noah was relatively righteous for the sake of the story. Jesus Christ is fully righteous to an eternal standard, to God's full standard. And the only reason that anyone can be declared righteous, which essentially means on the right side of God at the day of judgment, the only reason why anyone could be righteous is because of Jesus being righteous. It says very clearly, Peter emphasizes it here, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring who to God? Peter's writing to these early Christians who are now devoting their lives to the expansion of God's kingdom, who've now given up household, they've potentially given up family, they've potentially given up their jobs and their livelihoods in order to further God's mission in this world. They've got this newfound passion and this zeal. They're full of the Holy Spirit. Peter doesn't write, Jesus died, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring them, your persecutors, to God. No, he reminds them, he puts them in their place in the right way that he might bring you to God. The only reason any of us are in this boat is because Jesus was the righteous one for us. But I would say this, now turn as you're sitting there on the sofa, sitting down, being humble, turn to the side and see Christ sitting next to you. Because see where, it, where you've been put because of Christ's righteousness so that he might bring you to God. God is not standing far away as we are persecuted, as the temperature of the negativity about Christianity rises. We are not sat on our own face taking all the heat on our own we're sat with God he is at our right hand and we can appeal to him at any time for help and for strength he is the refuge he is the one that will get us through he is the one who will hold us and keep us going in this mission and then put accusations in their right category Christians are sometimes, and maybe some of you, have been accused of being bigoted, backwards, belligerent, blind, because you have been bigoted, backwards, belligerent, and blind. I certainly have been backwards, belligerent, and all the other Bs that I've just said, bigoted, blind, and when we've acted in those ways, often because it's just an instinctive, fleshly reaction to being persecuted or having negativity thrown at us, often we become this way. We choose fight or flight or freeze. 
Just apologize. We don't have to defend ourselves in such situations. We don't have to pretend it was anything other than what it was. It's just sin. We have committed crimes. We have committed sins in this attempt to build this boat, in this mission that we've been called to. Christians have got things horrifically wrong. And we don't all rally together and try and pretend like, hey, it's just the world out there that they only ever see evil and we only ever do good. No, no, no. We've got to be humble in this. When we have done evil deeds, it says in here, if we suffer for evil, that's the right thing. (laughs) We've done the wrong thing and we suffer for it because we've done the wrong thing. But there are times when you're going to be accused for being bigoted and backwards, belligerent and blind. And that was simply because of what you believe. Now, in those situations, it is a different story. In those situations where people are saying that you are bigoted, backwards, belligerent or blind, don't bend over backwards. Sorry, Amanda. Don't bend over backwards. Don't give in to the pressure. Don't bow to the pressure of culture in those moments. Stand firm. And God will give you the resilience to stand with him. You don't need to bend over backwards in such situations. And I would say very practically, if you're in either of those camps, the book of Psalms is incredibly powerful. It's the center of, the old, uh, center of your Bibles. If you just open the Bible, it'll be there in the middle. It is the prayer book of the Old Testament. And it is full of some prayers which are purely saying sorry, recognizing that you've sinned and apologizing for it. And it is also full of other prayers where actually the writer did nothing wrong and is being persecuted for it and is asking God to defend them and to be on their side and to make the situation right because they haven't done anything wrong. We have resources in Scripture to help us in both scenarios. And I'd say utilize it as much as you possibly can to fuel your prayer life. So put yourself in the picture. Once you've put Christ at the center of the center and you've put yourself in the picture, and then you put the accusations in their right categories, then finally I'd say this, put the results in God's hands. See... While the hot sun was baking down on Noah and his family. And the splinters were getting longer and sharper. And the blisters were starting to pop and ooze. And they were feeling uncomfortable and aching. And there was just the baking hot sun. And the rising temperature of the society turning against them. They would have looked so foolish to the world around them, wouldn't they? They would have looked like they totally backed the wrong horse. That everything looked as if this thing was a total no-go. That boat, even if they all climbed on it, was going nowhere. It would rot eventually. And then the story changed when the first drops of rain fell. The story radically changed when those first drops of rain started falling from the sky. And Noah and his family would have been found 
or seen to have got it right in the end. They'd chosen the right path. They'd believed in the right message. And you know, folks, eventually, God will make himself known to everyone. Eventually, the rain will fall. Jesus' reign, his kingdom, will come in its absolute fullness. And everyone will see at some point that Christ was right. And those who chose to follow him were right. You don't have to be arrogant about this. It's just the fact. Christ has promised that he's going to return. And the Holy Spirit has embedded it in your heart. It's foolish to pretend like it's not true. It says in chapter 3 verse 16, Those who slander your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame when the rain comes. Or chapter 4 verse 5, They... Those who have mocked you, who've taken the mick because your lifestyle has changed, because you don't necessarily associate with certain things anymore, because you're living for a different cause now, those people will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge. They will. We all will. We all will stand in front of God at some point, and the question is whether you're going to be on the right side of history or not in that moment. That's what it means to be righteous, to be on the right side of God at that moment when we are all judged. When he rightly judges the world for the horrific nature of this world. When God finally, finally comes, which side of it are you on? We don't have to fake things. I think I fall into this tendency all the time. I need to fake the kingdom of God in order to make it more believable for people. We need to really hype up certain things. We need to pretend like someone's been healed. Let's really try and force it out of them that they may be feeling slightly better than they, that they actually are. Let's make stuff up. Let's cover it over with synth sounds to make, make up for the fact that there doesn't seem to be anything happening. It's very easy to try and fake this. You don't need to fake it. When the rain comes, the rain comes and everyone will know. So let's pray for God's kingdom to come and wait and wait and wait. And in the meantime, this might surprise you, be baptized. There's a weird passage in here. It seems like an unusual tangent. And it says this stuff about baptism, which now corresponds to the story about Noah and the ark. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now that ruffles some feathers sometimes in churches, because that sounds like we're saved by what we do. But we also don't want to change scripture and make it not say what it actually says. How do we understand it? Well, I'm sure I haven't got a perfect understanding of this, but I found it very helpful to compare it to this question. Did getting on the boat save Shem, Ham, and Japheth? Did getting onto the ark save Shem, Ham, and Japheth? And I think the answer is yes, 
and no. God saved Shem, Ham and Japheth. The fact that God decided to tell anyone that he was going to flood the earth saved Shem, Ham and Japheth. He wasn't obliged to do that and he chose to. He chose to give a message of hope and salvation. Noah saved Shem, Ham and Japheth by his righteousness. We've already discussed that. The designs that God gave to Noah saved Shem, Ham and Japheth. He gave the perfect blueprints to build the perfect boat that wouldn't fall apart when the floods came. If he just said, by the way, there's a flood coming, good luck. None of them would have survived. But God gave the perfect plan so that they would be saved. The strength of the wood and the relative calmness of the seas under God's hands saved Shem, Ham and Japheth. That was confusing. It didn't make sense out of my mouth. God sent the flood. God sent the wind and the storms. But he didn't send them too strongly so they didn't crush the boat. The timbers of the wood of the trees that had grown by God's handiwork, they were strong enough to withhold the strain. That saved Shem, Ham and Japheth. God's faithfulness to his word, that he would close the door of the ark behind them and that he would look after that boat, saved Shem, Ham and Japheth. God's faithfulness to his word, that he didn't just leave them in that boat to starve, saved Shem, Ham and Japheth. What saved Shem, Ham and Japheth? God saved them. What role or what place was getting on the boat? Well, it was quite important. It was a reasonably important part of the whole thing. But what did it represent, I think, is the best question to ask here. What did getting onto the boat represent for Shem, Ham and Japheth? It represented that they had already pledged their allegiance to God and to Noah. See, how good, how, how safe would you have been if you had said to Noah, yeah, I really believe you actually. You've explained to me now why you're building this boat. You've given me great reasons as to the validity of the fact that there might be a God out there who speaks. And yeah, I, I'm quite convinced that uh, this boat will hold up when the judgment waters come. I believe you, Noah. And then you never step onto the boat. You didn't believe Noah at all. There was no belief in you at all. Your allegiance was still to the old world. You may have said with your lips that you believed, but there was nothing in your heart. Stepping onto the boat was the way that Shem, Ham and Japheth demonstrated their allegiance to God and to Noah. That they trusted God They took him at his word, they stepped onto the boat, and they were saved. I'd say Peter gives clarifications in this passage that help us. He says very clearly, it's not by the removal of filth from the flesh. I think this is a um, reference to Old Testament or just religious rituals. People feel like... If we do stuff to ourselves or to others, that can help them in their relationship with God. 
Because here's the thing. If you forcefully clean someone, if you force them into a shower and you wash them down with a hose and you force them into a bath and you scrub them even against their will, they will come out clean, won't they? But if you baptize someone against their will, do they come out a Christian? No. If you shove someone under the water and pull them out, no matter what age they are, and they aren't believing in Jesus, are they saved? Are they a Christian? No. External religious rituals will get you nowhere. This is a heart thing. He specifies it here and he says even more clearly, it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus had never been raised from the dead, all that you're doing when you go under the water is getting wet. If you don't believe that Jesus died for your sins and then rose from the dead and is now seated with God in heaven, when you are baptized and dunked under the water and come up the other side, all that's happened to you is that you've got wet. It is only through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that anyone is saved. But where does baptism have its place? It has the same place as Shem, Ham and Japheth stepping onto the boat. It is absolutely essential. Because it is you declaring your absolute allegiance to a king. It was in the news or in certain media circles. Will you pledge your allegiance to the new king, Charles? In baptism, you pledge your allegiance to the king who didn't have a nice shiny golden crown gently placed on his head. He had a nest of thorns rammed into his skull. He wasn't then taken to a lovely after party with Lionel Richie. and <laughs> He was taken before a mocking crowd and publicly executed for our sins. In baptism, you are pledging your allegiance to that king. Why would you not be baptized? Now, many of you are thinking, well, I've already been baptized. Okay, revisit it. Don't do it again. Think about it. Think about what you were doing back then. You were pledging your allegiance to the king of the new world. And in that pledge, you were declaring your life to be his. And you were saying, I will give up anything to follow you. I will focus, I will have you as the absolute center of the center of my life. Have you slipped from that? Have you drifted from that pledge of allegiance? Have you moved away from that? Well, today is a day to come back. To revisit that. And today really is a day to declare your willingness to be baptized if you haven't yet been baptized. We have little leaflets over there on the table. If you want to be baptized, we haven't got one planned, but if people request, we'll baptize you. We've got to. It's absolutely essential. So why don't the band come up and we'll pray. We'll just pause and think about what Jesus is calling us to. Psalm 37 says this. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in a time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. 
The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Lord, we pledge our allegiance to you again. We take refuge in you. We lift up the shield of faith once again, not just for us, but for those around us. And we say we are yours. We thank you that you, Jesus, are the righteous one who has made us righteous. Thank you that on the day of judgment we are totally safe because we're in Christ. And thank you that as we're in Christ, Holy Spirit, you are helping us to take steps of faith, to choose faith, not fighting, not freezing, not running away, but trusting you and taking steps of faith. So Lord, help us as we minister to one another, as we sing, as we respond and everything else. Lord, guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.